Good to see you guys. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here at the Summit. Thanks so much for being here. Happy almost Easter. You're two weeks away from Easter. Isn't that crazy? Two weeks away from Easter. Um, I was in Target recently. That's how all great stories begin, right? And uh, look, I love Target as much as the next guy. But I have this odd moment of internal struggle when I go through Target right up leading into Easter because you've got pastel-colored um, posters, advertisements, greeting cards. Like, it's Easter. It's the most magical time of the year. Jesus resurrected from the dead, and it's springtime, and here's a bunny rabbit, and here's a plastic chicken, and um, don't think too critically about any of this stuff. Put some chocolate in your mouth and uh, just be happy. And um, because I'm not weird, I don't, like, yell this out, but what I feel in those moments, kind of any cultural space I go into that portrays Easter in that way, is, like, I feel like this story is a lot darker than any of you are, like, remembering it being. Um, I don't know if you think about this, like, you know, stories are, like, much darker than you actually remember. Um, I feel like this with kids' movies. Like, we watch a lot of kids' movies in my house because, like, even when it's, like, my pick for the movie, it's not like I get to pick Terminator 2. Like, I still pick, like, the kids' movie, right? So it's, like, you watch Finding uh, Nemo, and it begins with a murderous barracuda, like, destroying this family, right? Like, kills all of its children except for one, psychologically warping a dad to be overly protective, You've got Up that begins with this old man wrestling with, like, the end of his life. I'm going to die alone. Um, all of my deepest dreams and desires are going to go unfulfilled. Those are the movies where you're like, this is a little bit darker than I remember it being. And that's the way the Easter story is as well. It happened in real history. Um, and look, I'm pro-resurrection. That's part of my job is to be pro-resurrection, okay? Love the resurrection. But here's the thing. I have to add this, like, really bummer of a detail there's this really unfortunate thing that has to happen before somebody resurrects from the grave. You know what it is? They have to die. Um, And death usually does not happen very well. That's particularly in the case of Jesus, who didn't just die, but died in the worst way anybody's ever died in the history of the world. If it were a contest, Jesus would win the contest for worse death. He is abandoned by his closest friends. He is on the other side of incredible judicial and societal injustice, convicted of a crime he didn't commit, convicted to death. He is um, tortured. He is stripped naked, mocked while naked by a bunch of soldiers, and then eventually is crucified, a, um, a form of death that is so painful. We actually borrow our English word excruciating from it, literally meaning out of the cross, because that's the word we use to describe the worst imaginable pain. Now, here's the thing. It's not only was that the way of Jesus, but that was the way for the first followers of Jesus as well. To follow Jesus immediately meant to follow in the way of suffering and opposition and persecution of Jesus as well. Here's kind of the the summary statement of what we're going to see is that historically and globally, when the church is held entirely to orthodoxy. Now, what I mean by that is in all of history to the ends of the earth, if churches decide to hold to the whole of orthodoxy, and what I mean by that is that they are not sort of picking and choosing the parts of the scriptures they affirm on the basis of what their culture in that moment, in that geographical location, are choosing to affirm, right? So they don't have these ever-evolving belief systems, but they're like, this is what God declares to be good, right, and true, and there are going to be parts of it that affirm the culture, and there are going to be parts of it that confront the culture. Anytime that's happened, historically and globally, the church has always experienced suffering and persecution as a consequence. Always. Okay? Historically and globally, when the church has held entirely to orthodoxy, it's always, the church has always experienced suffering and persecution as a consequence. So you feel motivated? You're like, yeah, this is, this is the right Sunday for me to choose this instead of brunch. Um, I pray you feel that way at the end of this. But 
Hey, th- this is actually deeply um, heavy on my heart. It's been heavy um, for a while. And so um, I just want to give you a little bit of a window of what I've been praying for you, um, because I do pray for you a lot. Like, you, ma- you matter a lot to me. And um, what, you've been, what I've been praying for you, two things in particular, um, in light of what we're going to see in Acts chapter 4. Um, the first is this, is just that God, through Acts 4, would empower you not just to start well, but to finish well. Not just to start well, but to finish well. Um, Jesus says something in Matthew chapter 10 that's deeply burdensome to me, where he says to his disciples, you're going to be hated for my sake, but for those of you who endure to the end, you'll be saved. Jesus had this vision for life where he would call us not just to start well, but to finish well. And I think a lot of times the burden that I feel um, for our church is that you could have a few years of like an experience with Jesus and not finish well. And I think one of the largest contributors that could lead to you not finishing well is you being um, made to feel weird, like an outsider, opposed. Um, and that makes you sort of leave your faith because it's like, well, I don't want to be a weird outsider or opposed for my faith. And even I think a lot of times in an American culture of prosperity, um, we sort of equate like if things are going well, God's blessing me. If things aren't going well, God's cursing me. When in reality, what Jesus does is radically recalibrate our expectation of what it means to follow him to say, no, like you will be hated for my name's sake. And I don't want you to be peer pressured out of your faith. Like I know that like we tend to think peer pressure like ended in seventh grade when that person was trying to get you to smoke cigarettes behind the girl's bathroom. Okay. It continues to today. And I, I, I am burdened by the fact that I think the, probably the most, like the most frequent reason I see people leave our church is peer pressure of their friends and coworkers. And they would never put it that way because it's embarrassing, but that's the reality. It's like we all want to be liked. And Jesus said in the expectation of like, if you want everybody to like you, like following Jesus isn't for you. Secondly, what I'm desiring is that God would empower us to have an unchanging faith in the midst of an ever-changing culture rather than always changing our faith to reflect the culture. Does that make sense? So what I'm saying here is that instinctually for all of us, we tend to look to, okay, what are the cultural experts saying? What are our friends saying? What are our coworkers saying? What do my professors say? Whatever it is. All right, these are the things that are true, and they'll be the lens through which I interpret the scriptures. So the things in the scriptures that affirm what my culture is affirming, I will affirm. The things in the scriptures that go up against my culture, I will reject. Um, And you have this ever-changing faith in response to an ever-changing culture that can never make up its mind of what it believes about the areas of life that matter the most. Now, I would say in all of this, what my desire is not for you to feel in this moment. Yeah, the reason you're doing that is because you're a coward. I don't, I don't think, I think the motivations a lot of times are much more noble and much more pure. Like you want to be loving, you want to be relevant. But the, the, the burden that I feel historically is that historically, any time the church has changed its faith in the name of relevancy, its impact on culture has not increased, but instead its relevancy has died. You understand that? Anytime the church historically, churches, denominations, Christians have changed their faith in the name of relevancy, of cultural relevancy, the relevancy to that culture has died. It's like God does exactly what he promises to do in his word, where he's like, all right, your light is done. Like, I'm going to extinguish your light. Your time is down here because you're not holding fast to the bizarrely beautiful countercultural ways of the king life in the kingdom, you're declaring there are only parts of the good and gracious rule of Jesus that are good, and there's some parts of it that are embarrassing and we should be silent about or even change because he's wrong. 
And God is not content to be like, you know what, we'll have a negotiation and we'll sort of come to an agreement about the kingdom that you're existing in and my kingdom. No, like God's kingdom and his king wins every single time. Thanks be to him. Thanks be to him. And consequently, we want to be the type of people in line with the historical church that are holding fast to the unchanging uh, faith delivered once and for all to the saints as opposed to changing the faith in response to an ever-changing culture. All right, that's what I'm praying that God will do. That's what I'm praying for you leading up to this. So you excited to talk about some opposition and persecution and hardship and all that sort of stuff on this beautiful, like first beautiful Sunday we've had. You're like, oh man, this is, I don't know what it means. It probably doesn't mean anything, but here we are. Here we are. And you ready to work through it? All right. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Let's dive in. So let's start with talking about this, the inevitability of opposition. I'm going to give you the context of what leads up to this moment. Jesus lived. He dies. He resurrects. He gathers together his closest friends and followers to give the great commission. He ascends to the right hand of the Father. God, the Holy Spirit, falls, empowers Peter to preach his sermon. Thousands of people saved. First church planted in the middle of Jerusalem. Peter and John then, through the power of the Spirit, heal a guy. Everybody's pumped throwing a party, this guy who couldn't walk is now able to walk, but the religious leaders and authorities of the day are angry. Chapter 4, verse 2, which we looked at last week, says this, they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Pause for a second, consider this moment of injustice that the people in power, not because something illegal has happened, but instead because they are annoyed... Isn't that crazy? Annoyed, arrest these guys, throw them in jail. Oh, by the way, we don't have time to have a trial because we want to get home to our families. I'm sure you didn't have anybody to get home to, so you can be in the jail. We're going to go home. We're going to eat our food. Then we'll come together the next day, and then we'll put you guys on trial because we're annoyed at you. Okay, great. Now, here it is, the first spark of opposition in response to the gospel a spark that will only grow into a raging fire of persecution that just gets worse and worse as the book of Acts uh, uh, continues on, as well as, I think, a direct challenge to the way that many of us think as it pertains to opposition for our faith. What I would just say is this, is I see a lot of self-identified followers of Jesus live underneath this banner and expectation of a non-conflict narrative as it pertains to their faith a non-conflict narrative as it pertains to their faith. And so what I mean by a non-conflict narrative is I think there's a narrative in the life of Christians in America that I think stems from a lot of privilege that says this, if we can just love enough, if we could just be as loving as Jesus, everybody is going to love us. You ever wrestle with that before? Just being like, there should be no opposition. If we would just love enough, if we would just love enough like Jesus, we wouldn't experience any of this opposition, hardship, being weird, feeling like outsiders at all. Now, I'm just going to give you three issues I see with that non-conflict narrative. One, it does not line up with the story of Jesus. Now, this is a big one. You know who is really good at loving like Jesus? Jesus. Jesus is really good at loving like Jesus. And you know what happened at the end of Jesus' life? Everybody got together and were like, that is a good dude. Like, we would love to have him at our parties. No, you know what happens? Is the least likely of political allies. We're talking Jews and Romans. We're talking people that could not agree on anything. They're like, the one thing we can agree on is this dude is so dangerous and th- so threatening to the systems of at hand, we gotta murder him. That's, and they agree, and they succeed in crucifying him. So one, the problem with it is it doesn't line up with the story of Jesus. 
Two, it doesn't line up with the story of the early church, the first followers of Jesus as well. Again, what happens in Acts 4 is just a small glimpse into what will continue throughout the remainder of the book. So, for example, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, the church's first deacon, he's helping care for widows, by the way. Like, who's anti-widow care? Apparently some people. Um, He preaches a sermon about Jesus, and it ends in, Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and ground their teeth at him, and they proceeded to murder him through hurling rocks at his body and crushing the life out of his body through the throwing of stones. Acts 8, following the murder of Stephen, we're told, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So we're less than a third of the way through the book of Acts, and we're just seeing a regular rhythm of people following Jesus was opposition for following Jesus. Third, so it doesn't line up with the story of Jesus, doesn't line up with the story of the early church. Third, it doesn't reflect the global realities of the church. The narrative of being able to opt out of persecution or opposition through love is a narrative of privilege that is not afforded to the vast majority of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the globe. All right, there's an organization called Open Doors, which is an organization supporting the globally persecuted church. They're just giving some stats from 2018. So this is last year. They say 3,066 Christians killed for their faith, 1,252 abducted, 1,020 raped or sexually harassed, 793 churches attacked and burned in total, reflecting just a glimpse of the persecution that's happening to approximately 215 million followers of Jesus in cultural and political context today, where it means serious persecution for their faith. Just give you one kind of example of this. China right now is experiencing a real crackdown on the church that will not affirm uh, its communist government. This past December, a pastor named Wang Yi, um, along with his wife, elders, about 100 other church members were arrested. Uh, He knew that this was a distinct possibility, and consequently, he pre-wrote a letter uh, in anticipation of his arrest. You can Google it. It's called My Declaration of Faithful Disobedience, and I think it would be a deeply respectful thing of him to do. It would take you like 10 or 15 minutes. Um, But I just wanted to read you one excerpt. Like I I thought this morning I was reading this excerpt, and I was like, we probably should just read the sermon, or read that instead of the sermon. And then just be done. It'll be like way better than anything I have to say. But I'm just going to give you two, because I worked hard at this. I'm going to do my sermon. So uh, (laughs) he says this. He says, as a pastor, my disobedience is one part of the gospel commission. Christ's great commission requires of us great disobedience. The goal of disobedience is not to change the world, but to testify about another world. All acts of the church are attempts to prove to the world the real existence of another world. The Bible teaches us that in all matters relating to the gospel and human conscience, we must obey God and not men. And for this reason, spiritual disobedience and bodily suffering are both ways we testify to another eternal world and to another glorious king. Those who lock me up will one day be locked up by angels. Those who interrogate me will finally be questioned and judged by Christ. And when I think of this, the Lord fills me with a natural compassion and grief toward those who are attempting to and actively imprisoning me. Pray that the Lord would use me, that he would grant me patience and wisdom, and that I might take the gospel to them. Look, here's the point of what I'm sharing here is to recalibrate our expectation that to fully follow Jesus means to be invited into a life of being opposed in some ways for the right reasons uh, for following Jesus. And what I feel burdened for is probably some of you are carrying the expectation that there's this possibility out there that I can just be loving enough and yet 
fully faithful to Jesus without anybody else around me being opposed to me. The reality is, historically, globally, there are aspects and implications of the gospel that are wildly offensive and unthinkable to every culture that's ever existed. Do you understand that? Like, some part of the gospel, when it's fully held to, is wildly offensive, is a declaration of war on the existing powers and principalities and idols of the culture. And so what we have the responsibility to do as thoughtful and desiring to be fully faithful followers of Jesus is to identify the existing powers, principalities, and cultural idols that we will have the propensity to worship instead of King Jesus. What are those in our culture? So that you're ready and prepared to be countercultural for the glory of God. There are cultures around the globe where to declare, as we will sing after this, Jesus, your king, is a wildly offensive thing because what you're saying in that moment is the king is not king, the government's not king, you're not some sort of uh, governmental deity. No, Jesus alone is king. There are other cultures in the world that would say to love your neighbor and to forgive them again and again. It's wildly offensive because it unturns and up, it turns upside down their notions of justice. And there are some cultures, tell me if this sounds familiar, where a threat on your individuality, your autonomy, your personal choice, you are the master of your fate, your domain, your sexuality, the areas of life that matter the most is wildly offensive. And consequently then, we will just diminish, silence, change the aspects of our faith that radically declare those to be the reality to which we are meant to submit our lives joyfully and fully. That sound sound familiar at all? That's not familiar. I'm just like burdened by this because we think down that path is life and it's not. It's pain and hardship again and again and again and God turning off the lights of Christians and churches and denominations to believe that's going to lead to relevancy and it doesn't. Again, this is like the only reason a history degree is helpful. Don't get you hired for anything, but you can at least be like, that's not a historically accurate argument, okay? So, so I'm just going to try to flex my history degree for you on a full, full display here for the glory of God and the tuition that we paid. Okay. Uh, two, opposition in the great commandments. So there, there's nuance here because I think immediately where we go is, oh, what you're saying is to be like a jerk for Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. I think what you're seeing in Acts chapter four is a, an embodiment of the tension of the great commandment. Now, the great commandment is this. Jesus was asked, okay, what should we give our lives to? And he basically says, you should have your life be about two things, about loving God and loving your neighbor. Loving God and loving your neighbor. Now, the order of these is important where Jesus is also saying it's important to love God and let God even define what love is before we treat our neighbors in a particular way. And there are moments where we dive into the tension of the great commandment by continuing to love God and even loving our neighbor by declaring the love of God in a countercultural way that doesn't make sense to our neighbor. That makes complete sense. Probably not. Okay, so that's like what the remainder of it is we're going to talk about, is the embodiment. That's what we're seeing in the book of Acts. We love God first. We hold to orthodoxy. We declare the difficult aspects that are hard for this culture in this particular moment to understand are true. Yet at the same time, we never use it as an excuse to be abusive or hurtful to people. But at the same time, we engage them in love. Okay, so I'm just going to give you like a bunch of examples of this. The apostles never used persecution as an excuse to hate or retaliate, but continued to love their neighbor, even at great expense to themselves. Persecution of the Christians actually fueled their love of their neighbor. So let me give you some examples of this in Acts, and I'll give you some historical examples of this too. Acts 4. All right, so they're on trial. Why are they on trial? Because they healed a guy. 
Okay, what do they declare in that moment? Verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, exclusivity of the gospel. Remember, they're talking to Jewish religious leaders. Okay, you know how culturally popular it would have been to say this? It's about as culturally popular as it is today. I mean, this is one of those wildly offensive things they could say. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You see that love of God, declaration of the love of God, coupled with love of neighbor, because their enemies are even, like, they're like, okay, why are you so loving? Verse 14, seeing the man who was healed beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Love of neighbor, love of God, love of neighbor. Acts 7, Stephen's being murdered. You know, he cries out as he's being murdered. You guys are in so much trouble. Murder them, God. Like, kill them. No, what he says is this. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Love of God, love of neighbor. Acts 8, great persecution arises. Christians scatter. They launch a social media campaign to make everybody feel sorry for them. No. What do they do? They scatter, they engage cities, and they engage those cities. Even where, like, they're the first people there, right? So it's like, Nobody there agrees with what they believe. And yet, what do they do? They engage them for the good of those cities. Unclean spirits were crying out with a loud voice. They came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. The point is this. An unfavorable cultural climate that wasn't particularly welcoming to the faith of the first Christians did not give them permission to be, you know, however you want to define it, jerks or Jesus, but rather remain unwaveringly committed to loving God and biblically loving their neighbor. Three, opposition to the Great Commission. Now, I think a lot of times, we kind of referenced this already, is, all right, so let's take a step back of the cultural moment that we're in. The cultural moment that we're in says, okay, what are the, what are the chief ethics? Love and tolerance in a lot of ways. With a historically shifted definition of what love and tolerance is, where to love somebody and to be tolerant of somebody is to not only accept, but to love and celebrate the things they love and celebrate as well. That's historically, there's a few issues with that. One, historically, that's not what the definitions of love and tolerance meant. Two, it's not asking the question, is it socially sustainable for those to be the definitions of what love and tolerance are as well? But because this is in so many ways the spirit of the age, what happens within us is sort of this feeling of like, but if we're different as the people of God, this thing is going to die. Like there's books written about this all the time, blogs, podcasts, everything. If the church holds to the things that makes it peculiar and culture, hated by culture, the church is going to die. And so in the name of relevancy, in the name of growth, in the name of survival, it's like, we got to get with the times if we're going to be okay. Now, the only problem with that argument, it seems so compelling until you get a history degree or you just read a book or whatever it is about this to understand that historically that's not what's happened at all. We already said this. Historically, when the church changes to mirror the culture in the name of relevancy, the church's relevancy dies. It doesn't grow. And when the church holds fast in the tension of commitment unwaveringly to biblical, robust, orthodoxy, while at the same time, in the midst of their peculiarity and their outsider, stranger, alien status, engaging the culture in which it exists and loving it, even at great expense to itself, the church has historically exploded. Now, I'll just give you some examples of this, of how the first Christians brought the gospel into their cities. And in so many ways, that was a declaration of war, a war of love, a war of love, but it was a declaration of war on the existing powers and principalities and existing social structures and social values of that particular 
day, and yet they were so unbelievably loving. A guy named uh, Rodney Stark, uh, who, after I read this after the first uh, gathering, somebody came to me and was like, this guy's not even a Christian who wrote this, but Rodney Stark's a uh, historian who was trying to figure out, like, why did Christianity grow in a context like this where so many of its belief systems were wildly offensive and weird to the culture in which it existed? And look at what he says here. He says, the cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. The cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. For what Christians brought was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture. Even you read early uh, Roman political leaders, and it's funny because like they're persecuting Christians, they're murdering Christians, they're opposed to Christianity. I mean, they do you understand? Like they weren't just like, ah, we're going to murder you guys. They had actually gone through a very thoughtful internal dialogue of what you guys believe is so dangerous. The most responsible thing for us to do as people of power is to kill you guys. Do you understand that? And yet, the Christians continue to love the community that they're in in spite of this persecution and opposition. In 361, the Roman emperor Julian was writing a letter about this, trying to wrap his mind around, like, what? Like, why are these people... On one hand, it's like they're wildly opposed to everything we believe, and they're not silent about it, but they're radically servant-hearted to the cities in which they exist. He writes this to another pagan leader. When the poor happen to be neglected and overlooked by our priests, he's talking about like our Roman pagan priests, so the poor in their cities are being overlooked. The impious Galileans, that's what they refer to the Christians. Okay, so when the poor happen to be neglected and overlooked by our pagan priests, the impious Christians observe this and devoted themselves to benevolence. They support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that there are people lack aid from us. Do you see the question underneath like the issue here? What is going on that these guys disagree with everything that we believe about the way the world works but they love us better than we love ourselves. Like, how does somebody love their enemies to that degree? And then the first Christians were ready to answer that question and be like, well, you see, we worship this God who, unlike any other understandings of deity in the world, believe that God loves and pursues his enemies. And those aren't just people out there. That's actually me. Like, I was an enemy of God and God chased me and pursued me and died for me and resurrected for me and won me into his family so that my identity would be transformed from enemy into son and friend. We have this support group for ex-enemies of God. It's called the church. <laughs> we get together like once a week, sometimes more um, in people's houses too, but you know, at least once a week we get together and we sing about this, and we learn about this. There's coffee cake. We'd love to have you sometime. That's how the church grew. I don't know if the coffee and cake piece works, but um, other than that, that's how the church grew. Can I give you a modern-day example of this? Because some people are like, oh, yeah, that's just like an ancient thing. Those things don't exist anymore. So um, we adopted my oldest daughter from uh, Taiwan. It's a small island off of mainland uh, China. And the region of Taiwan that my uh, daughter was adopted out of is like 0.00001% Christian. Like you can have church in a phone booth for all the Christians that are like in this, this region of, uh, of Taiwan. But the home that she was at, it's called the home of God's love, is like the most unashamedly Christian place you've probably ever been in your entire life. Like we're talking on the outside of their building, giant Bible verses and Mandarin characters. So like anybody goes by and they're like, that place is a place that worships and follows Jesus. 
It's led by a guy named Ted. He's right around 80 years old, just celebrating 50 years of ministry in this region of the world. And you know how, like, in cities, we try to be, like, secret ninja Christians? It's like, we're going to love you really well, but we're not going to say anything about what we believe. And maybe, like, you'll know by how much I love you that I'm a Christian, but I don't want to say anything about it because it might make it weird. You know that, like, in cities? That's not familiar? Ted's not like that. Ted's not like that at all. Like, he spent a day, like, he shares the gospel everywhere he goes. Like, every, like, I know it seems weird as a pastor to say this, but it, like, kind of made me uncomfortable. Um, I know, like, I shouldn't feel this way, but it's just like, man, like, I want to be more like Ted and less like kind of what's permissible American, cultural Americanism. And it's just like, you spend time with him. Anything that's confrontational about Christianity, talk about sexuality, I mean, anything that you could insert in is like, this is like what makes Christianity unthinkable. In a region of the world where it's way more offensive there than it is here, like, you spend any time with Ted, you ask him any question, and he is very clear. This is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible says. This is what I believe the good and gracious rule of Jesus demands again and again and again. Okay, so I became good enough friends with Ted that I'm going to raise the expectation in this illustration. This is like one of the, probably the two or three most impactful things that's ever happened to me in my entire life, okay? I'm walking with Ted. We're good enough friends that I can ask him a fairly personal question of, Ted, how is it that you fund this multi-million dollar ministry? Because he's got, I think, you know, 60, 70 kids that's with him all the time that he's helping take care of, that he's functioning his dad for. I mean, he's just an unbelievable man. This huge ministry, 50 years too, 50 years. And so the question is, Ted, how do you fund this ministry? Because the question underneath the question is, you're in a region of the world where nobody believes what it is that you believe. So how are you paying for this budget year in and year out? Now, my assumption underneath the question is Ted would come back and what he would tell me is, well, we have this big base of like, U.S. churches with more money than they know what to do with in Texas, right? Like some of you are familiar with these churches. You come from these churches. And they just got like more million. You know, instead of building like a third basketball gym, they gave us uh, some money or whatever, whatever it is, right? Uh, that's what I assumed. I assumed that's, that's what he was going to say. So, Ted, Ted, why or how do, you, how do you fund your ministry? And he thinks about it for a second. And he's like, well, I would say probably 98, 99% of the budget is funded by locals. And about 1% or 2% is funded by uh, Americans. Yeah, they, they give some money to it. And I thought, you know, because he's maybe a little bit older, I was like, I think you got this backwards. Yeah, I even asked him. I'm like, you mean the other way around, right? Ted, you mean, you mean like 98% is from Americans and 2% is from locals? He's like, no, no, I have it right. I meant what I said. I'm like, okay, sorry, Ted. Um, you know, uh, no, 98% locals, um, 2%, 2% Americans. So then I asked the follow-up question. What's the question that comes after that question? Ted, how do you fund a multi-million dollar annual unashamedly Christian ministry in a region of the world where nobody believes what it is that you believe. And what was so funny is Ted looked off in the distance like he had never thought about that question his entire life. <laughs> it was just like it never, like the, the bizarreness of it. And he like looks off for a second and he looks at me and he's like, I guess they just see how much we love them and we love their kids. And he changed the subject. Like, it was no big deal. I'm like, I need a moment. See, like, like something, something's happened to me, Ted. Like, I just need to, oh, man. I just, I think about that all the time. Now, here's, I don't, I don't think I'm exaggerating. Like, it really is one of the two or three most impactful things I've ever experienced. And I think why is, like, it was like a glimpse of what it must have been like to walk with Jesus to experience that. And even, I think, a glimpse into what is the great invitation that we are issued in the midst of being opposed for the gospel. I mean, I don't know. As soon as he said that, it made me think of, uh, or as I was reading this passage, verse 13, it made me think of that moment with Ted. That's kind of where that illustration came from. But okay, 
Where's this tension? Verse 12, there's no salvation in anybody else other than Jesus. Talk about this wildly offensive yet orthodox, historically affirmed statement. And then look at verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized they had been with Jesus. That might be my favorite verse in all of Acts. That radical commitment to the historical Christian faith, particular, a particular commitment to those aspects of the faith that are momentarily culturally unpopular, coupled with a radical love of neighbor, produces a unique intimacy with Jesus and a unique testimony to Jesus. And it's our intimacy with Jesus that fuels our endurance in the midst of those circumstances. And it's the type of people that we as the people of God, we as the people of the Summit Church are called to be. A great invitation in a culture where autonomy and independence and personal choice are king. In a culture where we pick and choose which lives are sacred. In a culture where sexual desire is elevated to the level of something more than even just ethnicity, but actual identity. And in a culture that feels increasingly unwilling to engage difficult questions as to whether or not what will happen if those beliefs are taken to their logical and natural conclusions, we are called to be awed for the glory of God. We are called to be the kind of people who in legacy with the historical and global church in affirmation of the truths of scriptures challenge a culture of independence to die to themselves all along the way, leading the way of laying down our lives for the good of our neighbors to challenge a culture that picks and chooses when life is sacred in accordance with preset agendas, to grieve the bankruptcy of that inconsistency, and to love the significance of all of life, regardless of age and class and ethnicity and size, from the womb to the tomb, all while leading the way and loving our neighbor through foster care and adoption, through speaking out against racial inequality and injustice, for advocating for justice to be served and to fight to change the systems that perpetuate these unfortunate realities to challenge a culture that says the only boundary around sexuality is there are no boundaries at all, to say, no, that sex is more valuable than that, is more than a physical appetite to be fulfilled like hunger, and instead should be guided by something more than pure desire. Rather, God rules over sex and calls us to reserve this physical act that declares the spiritual covenantal reality of God's love for his church, for the beautiful boundaries of a man and woman in the context of the covenant of marriage, all while remaining radically welcoming to the sexually broken radically humble about our own sexual brokenness, radically opposed to the bullying or hurting of somebody who doesn't immediately identify with those boundaries. And you know what happens when we engage that tension? People call us odd. <laughs> they call us weird. They call us uneducated. They call us like worse things than that. But let me tell you something. Verse 13 is like the way I want to be known at the end of my life. Like I know I'm not like the oldest guy, but I also feel like church planting like ages you in dog years, so I feel very old. And I think I have every year I do this, I become increasingly cognizant of that reality that like I don't want to just start well, I want to finish well. And I want to know like like what's gonna be said about me by the people I pastored, by the girls I raised, by my wife who I loved, by my friends who I covenanted to at the end of my life. And it's like it's not coolness, it's not relevancy, it's not a platform. You know what it is? is like, I pray, and even by my enemies, I pray that they would say that that's a man who's been with Jesus. He's common, he's uneducated, he's stupid, whatever it is, but that's a man who's been with Jesus. What's better than that at the end of our lives? What's a better aim 
that we would aim our lives towards? What's better than that? So that's what I want for us as a people. I want to lead you in that way. I want you to follow me as I follow Jesus. And um, I want to chase after that. Radical love of God, even when love of God is not in this moment (laughs) very popular. Radical love of our neighbor that makes even our enemies and our accusers say those are the type of people who have been with Jesus. Let's ask the Spirit that he would empower us to be those kinds of people. Lord, we love you and we're thankful for you. And uh, I pray that even in this moment, there would be a deep posture of dependency and neediness. God, even right now, as we think about the cultural idols to which we want to interpret our faith through, that you would break those idols in our hearts and minds and spirits and souls, that you would create within us not immediately a posture of um, thinking of other people that need to change, but think of the ways that we need to change, to think of the way because of the environment and the culture that we've raised in and the values that have been in so many ways imposed upon us and championed as most important, that there have been times where we, rather than radically following and believing you, we have twisted you to, sit our own, to fit our own preset agendas. God, forgive us for that. Let us weep at that. Do we not have any fear of you? Do we not have a posture of joyful submission that the good and gracious return of the king has arrived? Like, would you forgive us? Like, would you produce in your spirit a posture of repentance of like, why do we think living that way is gonna lead to life? God, forgive us. Change us. Let us radically run to what you have declared to be good, right, and true for us and for the good of the people around us as well. And God, give within us a legitimate and deep love of the people who don't agree with anything I just said also. At much sacrifice ourselves. Like, like they're image bearers. They matter. Culture will not thrive when we demonize um, the people that are different than us over and over and over again. God, in so many ways, I feel the burden that this would be the way that the church is countercultural and a culture that's increasingly trending towards not even being able to have a, a conversation, let alone love our enemies. Let us follow in the way of Jesus that we would, um, that we would, and through our sacrifice and through our love, um, a watching world would say, that's something I can't really make sense of. And we would point to the good and gracious rule of the king and the arrival of the kingdom. We ask these things in his good and gracious name. Amen.